Situation Critical, <clears throat> who will save the sitcom? It's a bold title. It presupposes that the sitcom A needs saving and B is worth saving. Uh, some might argue that it, it is already a golden era of sitcom and they would cite Fleabag, Catastrophe, Mum, Chewing Gum, People Just Do Nothing. And they would say that The Office and the Royal Family heralded a new way to render the old-fashioned sitcom, studio sitcom, redundant. Uh, maybe, but Mrs Brown's Boy still gets nine million. Uh, kids watch A Big Bang Theory on E4, and sometimes it tops the comedy ratings of the week. As you know, some, some of you know, if you follow me on Twitter, I often tweet uh, what gets the most viewers, and Big Bang Theory on E4 is the most-watched comedy in UK television sometimes. Um, and it's usually followed by Dad's Army on BBC Two, <laughs> which beats every single comedy on BBC Two and Channel Four virtually every week of the entire year. Uh, millennials are also watching Friends on Comedy Central, and Channel 4 starts today with King of Queens, Ray uh, Everybody Loves Raymond, and Frasier. So the idea that we don't want sitcom anymore is, of course, nonsense. Meanwhile, dramas are drawing massive numbers and huge investments. Good luck competing with the next series of The Night Manager, uh, which costs more per episode than an entire sitcom series. Anyway, I'm James Carey, a sitcom geek, um, and also I've worked on Miranda, my family, uh, Citizen Khan. I co-created uh, BBC, uh, sorry, BBC, co-created Bluestone 4.2 and a fair chunk of radio, which is why I'm very excited to have uh, Julia McKenzie, who heads up uh, radio, executive editor of radio at BBC Studios. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. That's great. Who have also worked with the likes of Mel and Sue, Danny Baker, Joe Brand, Jason Byrne, and a whole load of other people. Yep. I haven't woefully misrepresented you. No, you haven't. No, great. That's true. Okay, that's cool. And I'm also pleased to welcome comedy legends Lawrence Marks and Morris Grand, creators of Birds of a Feather, Goodnight Sweetheart, Love Hurts, Shine on Harvey Moon, and of course, New Statesman. What a panel. Please give them a round of applause. <laughs> so, um, firstly, uh, let's just ask the panel generally, do we agree that um, the situation for sitcom is critical? Um, uh, uh, Lawrence and, and Morris, would you say things are pretty rough out there? Or I'm things worried are about pretty nothing? rough out there. Perhaps there are fewer comedies on TV than there once were. But getting them on TV, I shouldn't think, is any more difficult today than it was when we started. OK, that's interesting. And what do you think, Julia? Do you think things are pretty critical at the moment, or they seem fine from where you are? I suppose from where we are, we still do plenty of sitcoms on radio. So we've got a couple of long runners like Ed Reardon's Week and Claire and the Community on Radio 4. And then we've got others that are starting. So Harry Hill starred in a thing called Life on Egg, which was set in a prison on an egg in the middle of the sea. Very surreal. Uh, written by Dan Meyer. Um, we've got quite a few other sitcoms in production this year. A lot of them are audience sitcoms. Uh, and there does seem to be a real appetite for people still to, um, to come across um, irresistible mm. comic characters, you know, mm. that, that just draw you to them. And I suppose you can think Count Arthur Strong has just restarted on the TV and that started out as a radio sitcom, for instance. So I think that it's still flourishing and I think there's still an appetite for mm. it. You mentioned some of those popular ones. I love uh, Silicon Valley, um, which I think you can say is a sitcom, really. So I, th I think that it's not critical, um, but some people do... Um, slag off sitcoms, don't they? They're all very old-fashioned and all the rest of it. But if you find the right sitcom and the right characters, there's no other art form that, that elicits love no. and affection as, as much as a, a sitcom, I think. Absolutely. Um, creators of very much loved uh, sitcoms, um, Lawrence and uh, Morris. 
Um, you started out um, some time ago now. Mm-hmm. Um, let's not be shy about that. Um, with a show called Holding the Fort for sitcoms, um, starring, you probably won't have heard of them anymore, um, Peter Davidson, Patricia Hodge and Matthew Kelly. Um, and the show only ran for three series. What went wrong? Um, <laughs> what went wrong was that... Um, is he here? John Burt arrived at ITV. Um, and we pitched... We felt we'd done... We'd done 20 shows or 21 shows and we felt we'd um, done all we could in that format. So we pitched a spin-off... Um, starring Matthew Kelly as his character in a new situation called Relative Strangers. And John Burt had replaced um, Michael Grade's open door policy with what I called a bricked-up door policy. (laughs) And it was so difficult to get him to do it that in the end, Humphrey Barclay, who was head of comedy, got so cross, he started his own production company and took the show to Channel 4. He also, John, John Burt, I mean, we're not here to talk about John Burt, but what he did was he, he did early market research into what show was going to be a smash hit for um, London Weekend Television. And they came back and he said, the show I'm looking for is called Bottle Boys. It's about a bloke on a milk float. Um And he made it with Robin Asquith, wasn't it? Yes, the birth and the mainframe. And uh, that, at that moment, we realised that the further we could get away from John Burt, the better our career. <laughs> Unless he's here. No. I'm pretty, pretty sure he isn't. The, the coda to this, or the no, yes, coda, no, coda's come at the beginning, what comes to the end? The thing that comes to the end, anyway, um, was that we made this show for Channel 4, and it got eight and a half million, and so Channel 4 <laughs> cancelled it out of embarrassment because they didn't want shows that were that popular. It was against their remit. <laughs> So this is uh, an extraordinary... Yes. St- and so, yes, and, but... So uh, you had a lot of... Exp- so it's interesting that you did a show that ran for three series and yeah. you didn't just cancel it after two, which is very much a bit of a fashion as well. It seems as if we have this kind of artisanal view of sitcom yes, making yes. that you make... To, I mean, Peter Case has ban- uh, stopped after ten, hasn't he? Well, ten I think episodes? that in those times, or, um, the, what they wanted was long-running shows. I mean... They still do. Well, cur- absolutely. Can I, ju- can I just say that the curse of the two series was because there were only two seasons of Forty Towers, and so mm-hmm. everyone afterwards, like Ricky Gervais or so on, said, well, we don't want to do two series because Forty Towers only did two series. Well, the reason Forty Towers only did two series was because the writers were getting divorced. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, they would have done some more. So I don't think that the collapse of John Cleese's marriage is a good enough reason <laughs> that shows are only done in 12. <laughs> it does seem to be the reason, though. That's so interesting. And, and then I guess the, the young ones, they only did 12 as well, didn't it? And that kind of for a new generation as well sort of became the, the, yeah. the standard. Um, but it's interesting that <clears throat> the the show that the, the first show that you wrote that that most that everyone here will really remember strongly is uh, New Statesman, and but that was your sixth show, um, and most people are in, in our industry these days they're done after three shows. Um, is that so do you, drugs? Do you, I don't know. <laughs> they're taking their own lives. Um, do you think that? Um, it feels like you had a lot of opportunities to write and improve as writers and learn on the job, as it were, that might not necessarily be the case now. Do you, is that a fair...? Yeah, I think what happened was Holding the Fort was a hit. So we had the sort of top comedy hit on ITV with our first time out. So everyone was wanting to employ you, I mean, as would happen today, I'm sure. Um, Shine and Harvey Moon just launched us into the stratosphere because, A, because the viewing figures were so enormous, but 
B, because having done the first series of half-hour comedies without an audience, I ought to say, um, the drama department at, at uh, Central Television wanted it for themselves and fought a battle with Light Entertainment Department and got it. So it went to the hour. Right. And suddenly the comedy drama was born. And he, he it's said your fault. <laughs> <laughs> was it not? <laughs> yeah, yes, no, it was. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so having done that, um, so having done that, I suppose the fact was people were prepared to take risks with us. Yeah. Uh, but it wasn't. It was only two years earlier that we were leaving our day jobs. So it happened very quickly. Um, Morris and I always had a sort of maxim that we must be thinking about our next series whilst writing our current series, which I think is a good tip for any writer. So, Holding the Fort, we were thinking about the next one. Harvey Moon, we were thinking about the next one, all the way down the line, even to the point of Birds of a Feather and New Statesman and Goodnight Sweetheart and beyond. What's the next show we want to write? Whether or not, of course, that next show would be bought was, was in the lap of the gods and the present... Comedy commissioner. Yeah, um, it's often seen to me that now uh, <clears throat> radio does fill a bit of a uh, uh, a gap that all of these different sitcoms on the TV used to. Um, to what extent um, are you sort of consciously trying to give people half hours to improve as writers? And uh, and at what point also? I mean, getting from getting a, but getting a show from radio to TV so is it is it seems as hard now as it's ever been. And I wonder if it's as much about training writers to be good writers as opposed to getting that show onto the television. Mm. Can you turn that into a question for me and answer it? <laughs> <laughs> there might be three in there, might there? Um, so the first question was, well, I suppose... There were no questions. It's not in my gift <laughs> to give people half hours. So I, I basically run a group of around about 12 producers who make radio comedy, and we pitch to Sean Ed William, who is the comedy commissioner for Radio 4, and we compete with indies to, to get that business. I know she's very keen to support new writing as, as well as, you know, she wants to have the established names as well um, that look good on the press releases. Um, new writers are incredibly important to us. So we have um, Newsjack, which will be known to a few of you, which is a topical sketch show. The predecessor to that, I suppose, was Weekending, which, you know, gave birth to so many new writers. And Newsjack is our version of that, which is an open door show. And that's predominantly um, sketch-based. And sketch is a brilliant way to learn how to write narrative, you know, arguably, because I think, for example, Graham Linehan and Arthur Matthews started out as sketch writers because it's creating a very strong character that's immediately apparent to the audience and you've got a beginning and a middle and an end and if you can perfect that as a, as a, a way to write, that's great tra training, I mm. believe, for narrative. So that's, that's one way in. The other way in, it is difficult to launch a brand-new writer with a half-hour, you know, four-part series as a sitcom for Sean Ed to, to make that leap of faith so it's more like you might get a, a pilot so a half hour broadcast pilot or a non-broadcast pilot or we could make use of the 15 minute slots which are on Radio 4 at 11pm uh, at night and it is possible to do mm. narrative in 15 minutes it's quite challenging you know mm. I suppose you think of American sitcoms are usually about 22 minutes 15 is a tough ask to get plot and resolution in there and so on but it is a, a sort of lo a lower risk 
way for people to get in and possibly get a commission. Uh, I mean, you guys did a bit of radio at the start. Yeah. Um, and how, to what extent was that useful in terms of just um, getting a bit of experience and also jokes and all that kind of stuff? Well, it was useful, first of all, get your foot in the door. Uh, secondly, our, our first radio work really was for Frankie Howard. And Frankie Howard sort of taught us quite quickly that he didn't tell jokes much, he told stories. So we were working in a narrative. There is someone in this room without whom we would not have got beyond Frankie Howard, <laughs> called Mr. Sir Barry Cryer, who, who rescued us one day from Frankie Howard and took us for his very stiff drink <laughs> and said, don't worry, it does get better than this. Um, but we, but we, we and, and did it? It did, no, it did, it okay, did. Good. But we learned a great deal working for Frank because he was, you know, when all said and done, he was still a great legendary performer. And, you know, we got our first laughs from him. Um, he got his first laughs from us when we saw his hair. And so we, we just, and, and for a comedy writer, to get your first laugh, the first time that, you know, we went into a, what was then not the Paris Theatre, which was where the BBC used to make their radio shows, which was unfortunately in London. And, um, not Paris. And, 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 that didn't work, did it? And, and, and when you get a laugh from something you've written, you know, I said to Lawrence, well, that's it now. We've got one laugh, so the other's should follow. I think what also we learned from the Frankie Howard show, there were six, six hours. Uh, we were still in our day jobs, so it meant working through the night. And he was uh, quite a demanding um, uh, mm. performer, but what we did learn was that we didn't want to be in variety. Okay. <laughs> yeah. um, which was good, because Frank had taught us about narrative, how do you capture a story in his six-minute end monologue, which was a good lesson, but we thought... We'd rather work in the thirty in the sitcom thirty minute field yeah. than the six minute variety field, but I don't think we would have come to that conclusion without having worked for Frank on BBC Radio. But we never did. We never did radio sitcom, and I've liked to have done radio sitcom because we grew up loving radio sitcom. And, and we'll do it. And <laughs> <laughs> can't afford to. Yes. And and I've got people to support. Yeah. Um, but seriously, folks. <laughs> um, we always say to writers who come to us with, you know, with new ideas, and, and, and sometimes with old ideas... Um, sometimes you know, with your ideas, I would imagine. Yes, yes, <laughs> they're very old ideas. Um, you know, radio is a great outlet, it's a great opportunity, and, mm. and the fact that there's these 15-minute offerings and, these, and broadcast pilots, non-broadcast pilots, mm. can't big up radio enough, because when... You know, the days when the head of BBC comedy, Gareth Gwendolyn, said, you know, when I go to see Control of BBC One, he's got 10 or 12 series slots, and I've only got eight or nine shows I'm confident to, to offer him, so I might have to repeat a show I'm not really crazy about, but I've got that slot to fill. You know, I started to cry at that point. <laughs> um, the tables have turned. Um, and one of the problems, because we are... I love talking about how successful we've been, but that's just going to make you want to kill us. <laughs> I think that amongst the problems now are the relatively few openings for, on television and the fact that, as well as, as you said earlier on to us, you know, an episode, you know, one episode of The Night Manager, um, you know, for the price of, 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 of 10 Mrs Browns, 
with much nicer buttocks to boot. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and on the other hand, um, you could devise a comedy panel show for ninepence. Yeah. And if, you know, a whole series of comedy panel shows, you know, for the cost of one episode of a sitcom. I think comedy panel shows and the excruciating expansion of soap are mm. uh, amongst our problems. That um, you can imagine my glee when I saw that EastEnders has now spawned a six-hour spin-off. <laughs> I really needed that. Yeah. Um, is that is a six? Is it just a one six-hour thing you have to watch? Uh, who knows? Who knows? Maybe six um, hours in the vic. So, so, so um, we are fighting for slots. Yeah. Writers are fighting for slots, and we have to look beyond the terrestrial commissioners, we have to start looking at how do we get um, online, how do we get on Netflix, how do we... You know, because I don't believe, as you said before, I don't believe the appetite... When we talk about sitcom, we're talking largely about shows made in front of a studio audience, which are disparaged by all those people who don't remember that... Uh, yes, Minister was made in front of an audience because they were laughing too, so they convinced themselves there was no studio audience. Mm. Um, you know, I think it was, um, it wasn't Graham, but it was, I apologise, um, but one very fine fellow writer um, who said, you know, if it was good enough for Frasier, it should be good enough for us. Mm. And I, so, so you have to overcome the snobbery yeah. about studio-based comedy um, and, and find ways to make it make it work now this is just saying wouldn't it be great if we could cure all illness and yeah, yeah. have a decent opposition so yeah. I appreciate that it's, <laughs> it's, quite a, it's quite a big ask but yeah. the first thing you need is to believe that it's worth doing yeah, and, we, yeah. and we do yeah, um, Julie, you're going to come in there. Yeah, just as a little footnote, really, on on the sort of development of TV sitcoms, it's quite interesting that Shane Allen, who's the comedy commissioner for for TV at the BBC, has in recent years used radio specifically to develop some ideas that he think might have legs for TV. So um, earlier this year, I think it was in March on Radio Two, there was a, a short run of sitcom showcases. There was a a sitcom called Parental Guidance, which starred Ramesh Ranganathan. Uh, and there was another one called Just Grand, which I produced, which was Phil Mealy and Danny Peake. And also there was a Tim Vine sitcom as well. So that's a better way for Shane to use his limited development yeah. budget because, you know, radio, you can't, you can't rely on the, the twinkle in the eye or the, the kind of tripping over a thing. You know, it really um, means that you have to... Um, well, sometimes you can. There okay. was a show on today which was all tripping over. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, But, you know, you really have to hone your characters and your writing, and it's a very good exercise, yeah. I think, to write for radio in that sense. Um, those... Uh, I, going back over that list, so, I mean, I'm, they, whether they're writers by, written by writers or writer-performers, that's another sort of, uh, sort of elephant in the room to, to some extent. I mean, you were writing for Frankie Howard... Uh, which most, the way he delivered what he said, most people in the street would have assumed that he came up with it all, all by himself. Um, and he gave a very good impression of being a writer-performer, yes. even though he barely yes. wrote a word, I believe. Yes, that's right. Can I say, begging your presence, Barry, that the reason we met Barry was he was in the back room when we were pitching our show, writing Frank's ad-libs right. for that night's <laughs> yeah. Parkinson show. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, we are the, uh, this is an event by the Writers Guild uh, and not Equity, um, and therefore we are thinking about the, um, the, the, the position, status and prospects for writers. 
Uh, to what extent um, is this uh, uh, is this an issue for writers? I mean, Julia, you're you know at the at the, at the coalface of this mm. in terms of you know if you've seen someone do an Edinburgh show, if they've made some YouTube video, if they've done this or that. I mean, presumably all that helps. Um, I mean, even though when I explain to my kids what I do for a living, that the job of a uh, commissioner is their only job is to imagine a show. Um, and then you sort of have to do the job for them uh, by showing them what the show is. Um, to what extent um, is are we expecting too much of people? Um, which because because also if people have to do an Edinburgh show and make a video, and make, we are starting to put the barriers very high for people who are able to make money through other areas. Perhaps you know already have a certain standard of living, and we are starting to lose out on the John Sullivans of this world mm -hmm. uh, who, you know, who came through, you know, with left school at 15 with, with no qualifications. Um, if he'd had to do an Edinburgh show, I don't quite know how that would have gone, um, <laughs> and um, what his uh, YouTube uh, comedy would have looked like. Um, to what extent uh, are we loading up too I've much saw, saw, on the copywriter performer? It. <laughs> it, was, it wasn't very good. I, I think that, um, yes, Edinburgh is a, a, a big place where we, we get a lot of... Um, uh, relationships and we spot writer performers that's true but we have plenty of sitcoms which are just written by writers and not performed in by writers and I suppose you know thinking for, for instance of a, a sitcom called Ankle Tag which has been commissioned uh, as a series that's written by Gareth Gwynn and Benjamin Partridge and they were both contract writers in our department it's a scheme that we do every year to, um, two people get to become contract writers and they work across all of our shows from the news quiz through to you know panel shows and they are not performers. Um, well, I suppose Gareth does his Radio Wales show. Um, but they were writing topical stuff and then gradually got experience, which led to them to write narrative. Um, Life on Egg, written by Dan Meyer, who writes for, for Harry Hill. Um, so there are examples where they aren't writer-performers. Um, but obviously, yes, you have the whole package there, and it makes it yeah. a bit easier. For but, it's a, but it is a very different world from, I think, when... Uh, in 2001, when it was Britain, Britain's best sitcom, I think you looked at the top 20 and only one of them, I think, which was Ab Fab, or two, including Forty Towers, were written by writer-performers. I think all 18 other shows were written by somebody who was not in mm. the show. Mm. So there has definitely been a very big shift. Um, I mean, that's kind of not great for you guys, obviously, but, I mean, you've, you've kind of got a bit of a track record going, so you're probably all right. But... We are doing the Assembly Hall this year. Oh, OK. <laughs> no, we're not. No. Yeah, oh, okay. <laughs> he is. You're not. Well, I'll go along and see him. <laughs> um, no, I mean, look, we're, we had no desire to perform because mm. we worked with people that did it so much better. Mm. I mean, what would be the point of us playing Alan Bastard? Mm. I mean, Rick, who was a performer mm. and a writer, he was a writer-performer, knew that he had to really... He really needed the experience of people that could put narrative together, mm. be funny, and he left it to the writer. Mm. And that's the way it was with New Statesman. Um, he, he contributed. Mm. He, he, he always complained there weren't enough laughs on any given page. Um, because he didn't understand narrative form. So he said, if you could put another 12 laughs on page 9, um, I'll, give, I'll knock it up to 20. And you'd say, but there's a story to be told, Rick. And he <laughs> didn't understand that. So that's the difference between a performer and... And I, I admire performers. I mean, they're up there, and God help them if they don't get a laugh. 
uh, f even Frankie Howard, I mean, mm. God knows he was the best in the business, was still so insecure that he might say something that wouldn't get a laugh, and then you blame the writers. So the writers are there to be blamed, mm -hmm. and that's good. Yeah. And, but it feeds into something <clears throat> that we talked about just beforehand that's uh, an issue here, is the fact that a good performer will trust the writers, and that trust is actually a really big part of this entire process all the way along the line, and maybe trust is something yeah. that needs to be... I think that we tend to work with actors, so not performers. Mm. I mean, we work with Rick, and we work with Nigel from The Young Ones, and we work with Aid from The Young Ones, and Jennifer and Dawn too. Mm. But we essentially work for actors. No greater satisfaction if you're going to write something mm. that's really good to have it performed by the best actors. Uh, so the writer-performer doesn't really enter our realm. Um, or hasn't, it might have to one day, I don't know. Uh, what you do is you look for the best possible actor to play that part that you know better than anyone else. Mm. And that way you get Sean and Harvey Moon, that yeah. way you get fools and horses. Yeah. You know. And But do you feel that um, one sort of thing we talked about briefly was how it feels, though, that the, the lack of trust also to let writers do what they do and for the people that are managing writers to be trusted to... I mean, I, I had to go to a, um, a read-through recently where the head of the channel had to come. And when I was explaining this to somebody who doesn't work in comedy, and they said, well, why, the head of, why is the head of the channel coming? And, and I said, oh, well, the head of comedy entertainment's coming and the head of comedy is coming. Um, what, doesn't he trust them to do their job? Clearly not. Clearly. Uh, I it's not for me to say, but uh, he didn't show up, obviously. Um, but, um, let, let me tell you that this bad habit hmm. came from Hollywood. When we worked in Hollywood, I'd been to weddings with fewer people than there were in for the read-through. <laughs> and I'd also been and to worse, weddings where the catering, food, yeah. yes, I was going to say. Um, it was just packed. It was just packed with people. And when you went round the table the actual introductions were longer than the piece you were going to read. <laughs> that came to England, or mm. came to Britain, and I don't know why it came to Britain. So now the controller who feels he hasn't got anything better to do than to sit in on a reading of a genre he doesn't properly understand is a mystery to me. Mm. Um, you either trust your writer, producer, director, or you don't. And if you don't, the writer, producer, director should ask them, why don't you trust mm. me? But no one does, you see. You've got to trust your writer. The best shows come when you give a writer his head. Yeah. And uh, all the shows you mentioned earlier, yeah. and many you didn't, but we all know, have come because someone had an idea and others were prepared to let them execute that idea as they saw it in their head, and that becomes a hit show. Yeah. I should barely think that Jimmy Perry and David Croft had the controller sitting in for Dad's army, or perhaps that's a bad example. They might have done for political reasons. But Forty Towers. Mm. Um, Cleese and Connie Booth knew what they were doing. They knew what they wanted to do. Yeah. So you didn't need someone from the fourth floor coming down to say, that could be better. Yeah. Because then you say, show me. Yeah. Um, the, you mentioned Perry and Croft there. I think they're a really good uh, example as well of a possible shift, which you can indulge me. Uh, we'll have some questions in about five minutes' time, so maybe be thinking about a question uh, to, be, uh, to be asking. Um, Perry and Croft uh, and just a generation of writers who, for whom entertaining the troops and entertaining people at holiday camps 
was normal and entertaining and, and inherently a worthwhile exercise. And that carries over into um, It Ain't Half Hot Mum and um, all those other um, kinds of uh, shows like, uh, you know, I mean, Allo Allo has a panto feel to it and all that kind of stuff. Um, I guess it, maybe it's part of the writer-performer thing, part of the auteur thing. Is there a sense in which that desire to entertain in a way that Mrs Brown's Boys unashamedly does... Um, has that been lost, do you think? Well, I think I was a big fan of The Office and a massive fan of extras. But I think the idea that comedy should be excruciating and should always be viewed from between laced fingers from behind a sofa, <laughs> preferably from DFS, is um, a bit of a sort of cul-de-sac or a sort you know or indeed if not that at least a pinch point it is a sort of comedy yeah. I mean I can think of several comedies that have been on in the last year or so which actually have been not at all funny but they've had one idiot to make jokes to make it a comedy um, I can think uh, uh, there is an over with writer-performers there's an over-dependence on that person's worldview and that person's knowledge of the world so you own I mean, I don't know that you're ever going to get a range of different things mm. from a writer-performer that you would get from writers interacting with actors and directors because they're basically more or less ploughing a furrow. Mm. One of the re you know, there's two series are out because that's them. That, that you know, yes, I've done my small, marriage, yeah. I've done my childhood. Yes. Now what am I going to do? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a very good point. I mean, if if every if a show is a writer-performer yeah. one and it is a very personal show then unless they've lived for a very long time, there's not yes. that, much to, yes. that much to draw but on. But going back, just to make a point, because we made this point we were talking before, mm. about um, there is a problem with the lack of access for working-class people, because you wanted to talk about diversity, didn't yeah. you? Yeah, and, I, and I, so um, maybe, uh, uh, Julia, you could have a speak into that in terms of now that BBC Studios have sort of gone off on their own and kind of have to make money... Mm. Um, to what extent is that uh, an issue for you and what are you guys doing to, to try and um, straighten things out? Well, we're, we're not complacent when it comes to radio comedy, but we're probably bucking the trend from TV in that we've got a lot of female-focused shows, whether that's stand-up based or, or sitcom. So To Hull and Back, for instance, is set in an up-north working-class family written by Lucy Beaumont. Um, all Those Women is, is not working class, but is uh, written by Catherine Jakeways and uh, it's got multi-generations of women in the same house. Um, Tom Rigglesworth Hang-Ups, um, not on air anymore, but again, that was a working class family um, set up north. And, uh, you know, the, I could sort of sure. continue to list them. In terms of BBC Studios... Um, well, we're still owned by the BBC, but we're like a kind of big indie, I suppose. But we're still governed by BBC um, editorial guidelines and all that jazz. But the idea is that BBC Studios can now make shows for uh, places other than the BBC, which will hopefully keep, keep us alive as producers. Um, and, you know, we have to connect with our audience and we have to pique the interest of the commissioner. And she doesn't want the same sort of stuff all the time with the same sort of voices. So it's essential to us that we do find other voices, whether that's working class or people with different family makeup. They're not all, you know, mum and dad together and two kids, um, different ethnicities, people with disabilities, people with mental health stuff, mm -hmm. you know, the whole gamut, really, we, are, we should be looking at because it makes life more interesting. Otherwise, you just get 
really bored as a listener if you're just hearing the same life stories and the same types of people being talked about all the time. Yeah. So, you know, our email addresses are all very accessible. If you listen to the radio and hear a show you like and then you want to make a relationship with the producer, get in touch. And if it's any good, hopefully we can, you know, make it together. Cool. Um, uh, that's an open invitation by the sounds of it, so <laughs> make, make full use of that. Um, just one last thing before we uh, go uh, to questions. We, uh, one of the things that we mentioned was uh, comedy drama earlier and also that night manager and all these sorts of things. Um, and uh, one, one comment um, that uh, you made earlier, Lawrence, um, before we came on was just the, the lack of expertise at a high level of sort of old, old hands. I mean, you guys must have been tempted to push off and write drama um, because you don't get crucified by critics like you do um, you know, if a drama's crap and nobody cares, it's sort of that seems to be all right. If a, if a comedy isn't amazing, critics will gleefully dance on your grave. Um, I mean, I've been publicly shamed in the, by A.A. Gill and the Sunday Times, you know, who said that everyone involved with Bluestone 4-2 should be paraded. Yeah, but who said? Um, well, exactly. And I did not. That was nothing to do with me. Um, uh, but, I mean, and some of these guys who could have hung around to help, like uh, Stephen Moffat or whatever... Well, he's just pushed off to write Doctor Who. And frankly, who can blame him? Um, so the, the flee from comedy seems to be yeah. um, quite a temptation. Has it been for you guys? And, you know, no, what, what do you really. make of that? I think our first love <clears throat> is always comedy, be it in the theatre or be it in a studio. We just got a huge buzz, as Morris explained, from that first laugh at the Frankie Howard show. So if you're going to write comedy, get immediate feedback. Play it in front of an audience. I often think, and, and often discuss it with our fellow writers, that usually a comedy doesn't have an audience because the writer's frightened that it's not funny enough. Um, and the real test is to put something before an audience and see its response, because you don't control laughter. It's either going to make you laugh or it isn't going to make you laugh. When we did Shine on Harvey Moon without an audience, it was because the actors were too grand to play in front of an audience. Yeah, they came from the National and the Royal Shakespeare That's Company, so they'd been doing that anyway. Um, if we would have suggested to Rick Mayle that we played New Statesman not in front of an audience, he would have blown the theatre out. <laughs> um, he knew it had to be, and we knew it had to be. So... I think what has happened in comedy on TV is that you are seen to be respectable if you can make it like a movie, and you're seen to be perverse if you want to make it like theatre. Mm -hmm. And yet I feel, this is just my opinion, that uh, television comedy is a theatrical experience, not a filmic yes. experience. Yeah. Yeah. Can I just add, you know, we have done drama, we do do drama, but comedy is our first love. Mm. Um, and I don't actually think, I, I sort of ag agree with Lawrence on this, but give it a slightly different angle. There is funny comedy and there is unfunny comedy. It's not unfunny stuff which comes out under the comedy banner. Um, and it's not, it's not entirely to do with the studio audience. It's to do with the amount of work that you put into it and the amount of respect you've got for your audience that what you owe them is a good laugh. Because... I think we've had enough psychopaths this month on television. I'd like a bit of a laugh now. Um, and so no one ever said um, Modern Family, until it jumped the shark last season, was not an incredibly funny show for being single camera. So they still worked and worked and worked to make that the funniest show they could. And I agree with Lawrence that I do get the feeling that people say, well, it's not in front of an audience, so it can just be wry. 
Mm. It can just be right. Let's make it right. Let's have it a bit sad and a bit wry and a bit cruel and a bit... Well, I would say to the people who commissioned that, are you in the right department? Mm. You know, why is this a bit... There are a few enough comedy slots not to waste them on being a bit wry and a bit sad and a bit cruel. <laughs> That's a very uh, good note on which to throw it open uh, to the audience. I don't know if Dave has a roving mic or anything, but... Uh, it's not a very big... How, we'll, just, um, we'll just repeat that for the sake of the, of the tape um, and for the police interview afterwards. Um, uh, how has the process of pitching a show changed over the years? Well... I can tell you just one good example. When we went in with Goodnight Sweetheart, which was difficult to explain to anybody, nobody understood what the hell we were doing and wanted to know what we were taking. Um, what did, how did you describe I it? I say that it's a love story of a man and an 80-year-old woman who's probably dead. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember Martin Fisher, who was then head of, acting head of comedy at BBC, saying, I don't really understand this. So we said, well, it's going to be a good show. So he said, uh, is it going to be funny? <laughs> <laughs> to which we said, oh, yeah, it'll be very funny. He said, could you give me six by September? That was one way of pitching. <laughs> that was one way of pitching. He trusted the writers enough to do that. But um, how is it now? The problem is, is who are you pitching to? That's the big problem. It's not as pitching changed. It's... Who are you pitching to? Do you respect them? And do you expect them to know how to make a really good script much, much better? But um, also, you used to pitch to people who could buy, and now you pitch to people who can recommend to someone else, who can recommend to someone else that they might want to ask someone else if they want to buy it. So it's, it's just, we, I mean, we, when we had a production company, Back in the uh, 90s, we had a deal with the BBC and we would get together twice a year with the controller of BBC One, buy him dinner and send him five shows. Not just by us, but by the whole company. He was an eager buyer because he trusted us. Um, and uh, things have changed. We're very lucky because um, we can get turned down by the top person straight away. Brilliant. You have to go through any number of things before you can get turned down. Yeah. One thing to add to that, um, uh, and to you in a moment, is that, one, it feels like that's what, uh, going to Netflix, Amazon Prime, and these guys, it feels, in the industry, it feels like they will just let you go off and do what you want, yes. yeah. and that's why it's a very attractive place to go. I also don't think it's necessarily... Um, uh, gone from British television, it seems that if you're a drama writer, if you're Jed Mercurio, if you're Sally Wainwright or someone like that, or Stephen Moffat, you probably will get the benefit of the doubt um, and you will possibly be uh, allowed to go off and do whatever you like in a way that if you're a comedy writer, I think you sort of have to prove yourself each time now, I think. I was interested that you guys um, uh, are keen to bring back uh, the bastard son of Alan Bastard. Yeah. Uh, or legitimate son, I don't know. Um, but... Um, and yet, I, you know, sort of, you would imagine that's a shoe in on ITV, but... Um, I don't know where it will go. I don't know if it will go, but I think it will. But I don't know where it will go. And we have a much greater selection of places to take it these days. Um, it's going to be dangerous. It's going to be risky. Um, and people might love it as they loved Alan mm. to start. But uh, you need someone at the yeah. top. What did Vernon Lawrence say to us? We took it to Yorkshire Television... Um, 
and we said, um, we, he said, could you give me a page? That was it. He said, we want to work, we, we want to do this, but can you give me a page? And we just wrote Alan Bastard's Who's Who entry. Right. That was it. <laughs> and we sent it to him, and he said, who's Alan Bastard? And we said, Rick Mail, and he said... Yeah. I'll clear yeah. studios yeah. for this. Mm -hmm. But that was because he loved Rick, and, and, and what we're going to do with this show now, mm -hmm. Son of Bastard or Bastard Legacy, is to, is to attach casting to it, and that's something else that you have to try to do, or if you can, is mm -hmm. get, you know, get some desirable casting. Um, George Osborne's very interested. Do we have... Uh, there was a quick hand up here first, and then we'll, and then we'll do you, Nat, and then you. If so, if you have a, um, a comedy idea, um, rather than just a yeah, script, uh, rather than just send it to the writer's room who will accept it for a month every year, what, what would you do with it? Well, uh, uh, let's start with Julia on that one. Uh, yeah, well, um, listen to the, ra the comedy slots on Radio 4. Um, have a think about what makes you laugh, what you admire, because it's all about f getting a relationship with a producer is really important. So if, if you hear a, a producer at the end of it that you feel you've got an affinity with, Send them an email and say, would you be interested in reading my script? And Same goes for television. I would yeah. say if a TV yeah. producer makes mm -hmm. things that you like, mm -hmm. send it to them um, and, you know, and check they got it and a month later and don't stalk them or wait. Don't get caught waiting outside but, but their I house. But I think once you've, written, <laughs> once you've written the script, mm. get mates around and read it yeah. and see if it is funny because what's on the page and what's on the ear are two very, very different things. Yeah. And yeah. also, you know, there are a lot of independent production companies, there's lots of doorways. When we started, it was a, there was quite a lot of room inside the building, but only one or two little doors to get in. Now there's quite a small building with lots of doors, mm. which is very frustrating, but it means you can at least get some feedback from an independent production company, you know, and, and, and they can say, this is promising, or this is uh, wonderful, or, this is an insult to my intelligence. Mm -hmm. So you can get feedback from places other than the BBC Writers' Room. Yeah. And what's most likely to happen is they will say, that's a very interesting show. Um, however, we're working on this other show. Uh, maybe you'd like to come and work on that. Um, or, you know, they might sort yeah, of exactly. suggest that you... There's you know, more than one way to skin yeah, a cat, which yeah. is such a horrible thing to say. Yeah, it is, <laughs> yes, that's right. Uh, we've got five minutes left and two more questions. So, Nat, you get... so what are the other uh, options for BBC Audio? You know, where could they go? Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely more challenging for us than it is TV. So, you know, we've gone with TV, but primarily the exercise is for TV to be able to pitch outside the BBC. But yes, podcasting is one route, Audible is another, who they're launching their channels this summer. And it, are, they have already commissioned various sitcoms and so on. They haven't released them yet, so that could be something to look at. Um, and there's, there's other opportunities where we can exploit some of the formats and ideas that we have on uh, in radio that have, have reached a dead end with BBC because there are only so many slots in the BBC. So I hope it will give us new opportunities to extend the life of stuff that we really believe in on radio but can't find a home in the BBC. Great. Thank you. Um, yes, and your question? I hope you heard that, because I can't paraphrase it. I Discuss. Think, <laughs> I, think, I think that's true to a degree. I, uh, when TV started, sitcom was comedians. It was the, the Dickie Henderson show or the Bob Hope show. That, and then, um, largely through the influence of Gorton and Simpson, um, Hancock and then Steptoe, um, people said, oh, let's make this with the best actors we can get. Um, and I, th and I think there is a, a, a dichotomy. I think you're right. I'd like, and I think that the writer-actor arrangement is under 
appreciated. There's room for both kinds. There'll never be 25 million viewers for a comedy again, or even 15 million viewers for a comedy again, because those were the days of the three or four channels, no catch-up, no recording, no Netflix. So we're not going to go back to those days. But that doesn't mean you can't have a show which does appeal across the board, that doesn't, that doesn't make half the family run screaming for its iPod. Pad, pid, whatever it's called. Ipid, pid. Ipid, Ipid. I wasn't supposed to say Ipid because that's still under wraps. Um. Um, yes, Jill. Yeah, and I, I suppose what I'd say is, yes, we do have a lot of writer-performer stuff, but we also equally have a lot of writer-only sitcoms. Uh, you, yes, there might be comic actors or comic performers who are cast in that, um, you know, so like I mentioned, Ankle Tag, for instance, two non-performing writers are writing it. Alice James is the star of it. Um, uh, Life on Egg, which is Harry Hill, but written by Dan Meyer, who's who's just a writer. Um, Angstrom, something else coming out with Joel Morris and Jason Hazley are the writers. They're not performing in it. So there is evidence to, to show that it's fine. And, you know, right, there's plenty of work out there for writers who come up with a great concept and great comedy characters. Um, so th there's something for everyone, basically, but I don't think yeah. that door's shut. I also think that one of Morris and my aims in the early days was to create a really good show where you could bring writers in and people called it you know mm. team writing mm. you've invented but no we found a lot of good writers with the help of a producer Humphrey Barclay that we've continued to work with right through so they learned the craft mm. just on our show didn't matter it was our show but it helped us because then we could go to the BBC and say can we do 13 instead of six six isn't great, you know, it isn't elastic enough. Mm. And of course, if you've got really good writers on hand, and they, they all, we were all new writers, we were all starting out, and there was some really good, and I remember being interviewed by a woman from the journalist, who's a uh, journalist in The Guardian, who said, I'd love to write an episode of Birds of a Feather. And we said, well, write it then. And she did, and she got on the team, and she wrote many, many episodes. Mm. So I think you need shows that have been give, trusted enough to have long runs, where the creators, as in America, are happy to form a writing team. Yeah, I must say I would love that, that to happen on radio, you know, because we... Let's talk. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, these days we often just get four episode commissions for a series yeah. and that's, that's, it's hard to really establish characters and to get an audience responding. So it would be amazing to have long runs like that and bring yeah. uh, writers in to establish... And there's a lot yeah. of new writers that want to do it. We receive scripts from people that have never had anything on anything, mm. that are good writers, you know, and you know that if you worked with them, if you nurtured them, if you told them why something doesn't work, they'd get better. Mm. Yeah. And that's what you want. On that constructive and positive note, we have to end. It is one minute past eight and we uh, are going to be thrown out. So uh, please uh, give a huge round of applause for our guests. Thank you very much to Julian McKenzie, Lawrence Clark's Forest Grand. And for our chairman. Thank you very much. Thank you for Dave for doing a lot of the legwork. Thank you to the guys at the back for recording it. And uh, see you in the bar.